Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you all this morning. If you're uh, new visiting with us, my name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. I get the opportunity to open up God's word with you this morning. And I don't know about you, but as I reflect on the last few weeks, we've had some different guys coming up and teaching. Uh, several weeks back, Bob Krejcik, one of our elders, taught. Uh, last week, if you were here for our VBS Sunday, Thomas, who had been guiding our kids through the lessons throughout VBS, just unpacked that idea of Jesus as the light of the world. And I am grateful to be a part of a church where we have a plurality of teachers. I think that is such a gift, right? I mean, think about it. Our, one of our main teaching pastors, uh, Todd, is on sabbatical right now. And yet... God is so richly provided for us. And I think there's actually something so healthy about hearing from different people. It's almost like when we look at the Gospels, the, the, the four first books of the, of the New Testament that tell the story of Jesus, written by four different guys with different personalities and vocabularies and experiences. I remember hearing one guy talk about it where it's almost like, it's like, a, like, a, like a, a guy who's writing a piece of orchestral music talking about, do I want the French horns to lead out right here or do I want the violins or something like that? Like the different personalities and emphases that bring out the beauty of who our God is. And I think again, to a much less, much less perfect degree, that's what we seek to do as teachers of God's word is with each of our personalities, with the strengths, the giftedness that God's given us, unpack God's word for the building up of the church. I was reading uh, earlier this week from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, whatever we do when we gather together, the purpose of it is not just for the feels that it gives us or the fun that we have, though we want to do that. It's for building one another up. And my hope is that as we open up God's word this morning, you will be built up. We've got more guys that you'll get to hear from in the next couple of weeks. I want to give you a heads up that next Sunday we're going to do our second of what we hope is a regular rhythm of unity services with our Spanish congregation. Next Sunday we'll do another service, English, Spanish, worship together, preaching and, and communion in both languages. If you missed the first one that we did back in May, guys, I'm so excited. It's going to be a ton of fun. Really cool. And you'll get to hear from a few more of the elders as we jump into Matthew 13. But for this morning, if you have your Bibles, I saw the, the ushers putting some in your hands. If you need one, they would love to give you one. We're going to be finishing off Matthew chapter 12 this morning. A few weeks back, we saw how this chapter is this big, long, basically argument, if you will, this, this contentious conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we, see how, we saw how in this chapter is the, the point at which the Pharisees make up their minds about Jesus. They have decided that they need to destroy him because they have concluded that the power through which Jesus works and speaks is not God's power, but Satan's power. And in response to that, Jesus looks at them and says, you have passed a point of no return. There will be no forgiveness for you because you have rejected me, the only one in whom we find forgiveness. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start reading in verse 38 through the end of the chapter in verse 50. If you're able to, would you stand with me as we read this together? And you can follow along on the screens as well. This is the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. Father, in these next few minutes that we have, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you and love you and follow you through your word. I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, there's a lot to unpack in this passage, both in terms of the way that Jesus finishes up this argument, this contest, if you will, with the Pharisees. And then those last words in which Jesus, in just a few words, radically redefines what it means to be part of his family. But let's start back at the beginning of this passage in verse 38, where we have these two groups, the scribes and the Pharisees, closely aligned. We've heard mostly from the Pharisees, the scribes kind of join in on this part. And they come to Jesus after this whole conversation, and they say to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They're asking Jesus for a sign, for proof, some sort of evidence to back up his message, back up his ministry, which is actually something that we see pretty frequently throughout the Old Testament. Times where God gives people signs or even people ask for a sign of confirmation of what God is saying to them. One of the clearest ones is like in Exodus chapter 4, toward the end of that conversation that Moses has with the Lord at the burning bush where the Lord gives him two signs to perform once he gets back to Egypt for the people of Israel and Pharaoh to know that God truly has sent him. Do you remember what they were? One had to do with taking his stack. He says, take your staff and throw it on the ground. And what happened to the staff? Turns into a snake. Okay, now grab the snake by, a ta by its tail. Ooh, that doesn't sound safe. Grabs it by the tail and it turns back into a staff, right? Then he says, take your hand and stick it into your garment. And when he pulls it out, his hand is leprous and white. And then put it back in and it's healed again. Two signs to confirm, right? So we see it's not always wrong to ha ask for a sign. But we know this is not an honest question by the scribes and Pharisees, is it? This is not a question motivated by an honest rustle of faith. 
or, or even the willingness to believe if presented with sufficient evidence. I mean, remember the way that this whole conversation started in chapter 12 with Jesus casting out a demon from a man who was both blind and mute. And now that dude can both speak and see. Like, what about that sign? What about all the signs, the miraculous works that they'd already seen Jesus do? This isn't an honest request. God had, Jesus had already shown them more than sufficient evidence. And they'd already made up their minds. They'd already decided earlier in the chapter to try to destroy Jesus, which is why Jesus responds to them so harshly. harshly. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. They're not evil because they ask for a sign. <laughs> he already told them that they were evil. They asked for a sign, but he goes, you know, you know you don't want more evidence from me. You know you've already made up your mind about me. But look at that word I highlighted in blue up there, generation. Did you notice that Jesus word, uses that word a lot in this passage? He uses that word frequently, and he uses it to refer to his contemporaries, the, the people around him that witnessed and saw his ministry. It's, it's, it's important to kind of specify it like that, because we don't want to think that by speaking of Jesus' generation, he's talking about all people on earth at the time, or that even that he's talking about all Jewish people everywhere. He's talking specifically about the Israelite people living in and around Galilee and Judea who saw his ministry, his contemporaries, his generation. But he doesn't talk very positively about his generation, does he? He talks rather harshly because, again, for all of the signs that Jesus did, all of his miraculous works and his wise teaching, the majority of the people of his generation either just kind of watched from a distance and stayed kind of on the fence and noncommittal, or like most of their leaders, they decided to reject Jesus and fight against him. They did not turn and trust and follow him. That's why he says, you are an evil and adulterous generation. And he says, basically, there is no sign for you, perhaps. Maybe no slide for you either. There you go. No sign for you, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here's your sign. Some of you guys might remember that old comedy sketch. I think Bell Ingvall was the guy who did it. It's like, if people could just have a sign that says, I'm stupid, it would save us a lot of trouble when you get in comedy. That's the whole point. Here's your sign, right? This isn't a sign that says, I'm stupid. Jesus says, the one and only sign that I'm going to give you is this sign of the prophet Jonah. What is that about? Here's what I think is incredible. This is the biggest moment of foreshadowing yet in the book of Matthew about Jesus' coming death and resurrection. Look at how he goes on to explain what this sign of Jonah is all about. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now again, because... Most of us are familiar with this story, which if you're not, no problem, let's hear it now. Most of us are familiar with the story. We, we know what Jesus is alluding to, right? We know what Jesus is foreshadowing here. He's talking about his death, his burial, that he's in the tomb for three days, and then he rises again on the third day. 
We see that that is what Jesus is hinting at. And Jesus says to these guys, you want proof that I'm the Messiah, that I'm the one that God promised? Watch and see for the same pattern of Jonah to take place in my life. Now, again, for us, we can look at this and we can kind of see, we know what Jesus is alluding to. But remember, when he says this, none of that has happened yet. So what would the response of the scribes and Pharisees have been to this whole sign of the prophet Jonah? Huh? What is he talking about? We have no idea And they would have no idea. And Jesus gives them no further explanation because here's the point. There is a very important shift in strategy taking place in Jesus's ministry right here at this moment, at the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13. Throughout the majority of Jesus's ministry up to this point, he has spoken clearly and plainly. Doesn't mean it wasn't hard to understand that it wasn't challenging But he had clearly presented himself to the people and the response of the majority of his generation, again, was to be ambivalent to him or to reject him. And at this moment, Jesus makes a shift in strategy from clear communication to less clear. He begins to speak in parables. He begins to speak in more cryptic sayings like this sign of Jonah right here. When the purpose of these sayings, get this, The purpose of these sayings is to keep those who reject him in the dark. To obscure the truth from them while simultaneously, this is the genius of Jesus. These same cryptic sayings and parables that obscure the truth from one group reveal the truth to another group that is willing to come to him and ask him for understanding. This is what the parables in chapter 13 are all about. I'm going to skip ahead to what John's going to take us through in a couple of weeks. I have his permission. I talked to him about it this week. But in John chapter 13, or in Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 13, Jesus explains why he begins to speak in these parables, these, these true-to-life stories that, that uh, they're made up, but they illustrate something that's real. The disciples come to him, and they say, why do you speak to them, to the crowds, in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now again, we'll jump more into this passage in two weeks. But again, I want you to notice the shift that's taking place in Jesus' ministry right now, his strategy. From clear teaching to less clear teaching because his clear teaching has been rejected by the majority of his generation. Here in chapter 12, again, he, he just drops this whole idea of this sign of Jonah without much more explanation and just leaves it dangling there. One day you'll see. And then he goes on and he moves on while he's talking about Jonah to comparing the way that people responded to the ministry of Jonah the prophet with the way that people responded to his ministry, right? You see that there in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And there's something greater than Jonah here. Do you recall that about Jesus, uh, the ministry of Jonah? Remember who Jonah was sent to? 
Yeah, he says there, the people of Nineveh. What was Nineveh? What country was Nineveh a city a part, a part of? What was that? Assyria. The Assyrian Empire, the big world empire before the Babylonians kicked them out and took over, right? The Assyrian Empire is the same group of people who in 722 BC destroyed the 10 northern tribes of Israel and carried them off into captivity. These are the bad guys, right? No wonder Jonah didn't want to go, but he was going whether he wanted to or not, right? Even after he got swallowed by the fish and spit up on dry land and goes, Lord, I think you want me to go to Nineveh. Did he go with a good attitude? Not at all. He didn't even preach with a good attitude. He is like the, the anti-type, the, 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 the negative example of how you preach the word of God. And yet, Jesus' point, despite Jonah's bad attitude, the people of Nineveh repented. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. But what about Jesus' generation? Jesus came with a pure heart and clear teaching and genuine love. And they said, nah, I think this guy's empowered by Satan. And so Jesus says, one day at the judgment, when you all stand before me as judge, I will call the people of Nineveh as witnesses for the prosecution against you. Because they repented at the, at the teaching of Jonah. And there is something greater here. He moves on after that to cite another example. It's interesting. A couple weeks ago when, when Bob Krejcik was teaching us from chapter 11, do you remember he took us to that passage where Jesus announces woes on the cities where most of his mighty works were done on Chorazin and Bethsaida and so forth? And he uses two Gentile groups, the people of Tyre and Sidon and the people of Sodom as a comparison. These two groups that are negative examples of Gentiles who were wicked and rebelled against God and God judged them. And he says to the people of his towns, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for those towns than for you because you rejected me. You did not turn and repent. There's a lot of parallels in this passage here at the end of chapter 12. Jesus, again, uses two examples of Gentiles, non-Jewish groups of people, but whereas here in chapter 11, they're negative examples, the two that he uses in chapter 12 are positive, right? It's the people of Nineveh. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then the second one that he talks about there in verse 42 is this woman called the Queen of the South, or we might know her as the Queen of Sheba. Most likely an ancient kingdom down south somewhere in Africa who hears about the wisdom of Solomon, the, the son of David who ruled on the throne after him, who was the richest and wisest king in Israel's history. She hears the reports and goes, I got to go see this for myself. And Jesus says, she came from the ends of the earth to hear his wisdom. But the point isn't just that she came and heard Jesus's wisdom or uh, Solomon's wisdom, but how she responded to it. This story about the queen of Sheba takes place in uh, 1 Kings chapter 10 in your, in your Old Testament. Um, but take a look at her response from 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 6. She said this to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. I wanted proof. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God. That's the key. 
Not just that she came and was impressed by his wisdom, but her response was to praise the God of Israel. Think about this. A Gentile pagan queen from Africa comes and praises the God of Israel because she hears the wisdom from Solomon's mouth. And Jesus says there's something even greater than Solomon here, but how did his generation respond? They hear the wisdom from his mouth, and rather than praise God, they attribute it to Satan. So again, Jesus says, man, on that day of judgment, the second witness for the prosecution that I will call will be the queen of the south. She responded rightly to the wisdom of God in Solomon, and there's something greater than Solomon here. Stop and consider This is the third greater statement that Jesus has made in chapter 12. We looked at the first one several weeks ago when we were at the first part of chapter 12. When Jesus talks about how David and his guys came and ate the the bread from the temple. And then he says this. He says, behold, something greater than the temple is here. And then the two that we saw today in verses 41 and 42. Something greater than Jonah, a prophet, is here. Something greater than Solomon, the, the, the wise king, is here. Jesus is very emphatically taking the most important, most precious institutions in Israel and uniting them together in himself. Do you see that? Something greater than the temple, the dwelling place for God within his people. Jesus says there's something, there is a greater dwelling place for God here with me. The priests who served in the temple as those intermediaries, those mediaries between God and the people. Jesus says there's something greater here in me. The prophets who would come and speak God's word to the people and call them to live according to it. There's a greater prophet here in Jesus. Solomon, not only the king from the line of David, but a teacher of wisdom, a sage. Jesus says, there is greater wisdom being unveiled now here with me. There is a greater king from the line of David whose rule brings healing and rest and wholeness. All of the story of Israel finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, the people who were the experts in that story missed him didn't just miss him, were resolute against him and sought to destroy him. I mean, think about this again. What was the sign that Jesus told the Pharisees, the only sign they were going to get? The sign of who? Jonah. Like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. The Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. Why would the Son of Man, why would Jesus be killed and put into a tomb? Because of them. Because they would succeed in their plot to destroy Jesus. They would bring about the fulfillment of the very sign that Jesus told them to look for. Think about that. And yet in the midst of what they intended for evil, God intended it for good, didn't he? He didn't leave Jesus in that tomb. Three days later, he rose victorious. And he said in John 12, man, when he was lifted up from the earth, he would draw all people to himself. People from every tribe and tongue and nation can find hope in Jesus by turning and trusting and following Jesus. Amen? That's where this story is going. But again, don't miss the tragedy. 
the people who should have been the quickest to pick up on it, the closest, the most knowledgeable in God's word, were the ones who missed him. And the people we would have least expected turned and trusted and followed Jesus, like the people of Nineveh did, like the queen of the south did. Well, again, those who should have known were left in the dark, or even like Thomas said last week, chose to stay in the dark because they didn't want the light. It's interesting. I don't know if you've caught this as you've been reading through the book of Matthew, and hopefully you have. I, I would love to encourage you in that way to, to take time to read uh, through Matthew as we're preaching through it. Continue to do that. But did you notice this as you, if you've been reading through it? Throughout Matthew's narrative, every time we come up against a place where someone from, or a group of people from Israel reject Jesus or choose to oppose him, somewhere close by in the narrative, Matthew talks about Gentiles. He talks about people from other nations, non-Jewish people. Why is he doing that? I think because G Matthew is training us as disciples, just like Jesus trained him to remember that though Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to them first, his mission was always much bigger than just Israel. He came, the way Isaiah 49 says it, to be a light to the nations that God's salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And each time along the way, as we see the very people to whom Jesus is sent begin to turn and attack him, Matthew says, don't worry. This is all part of God's plan. This is all part of that mission to extend to the Gentiles. Which again, think about this. Another part of the tragedy, that mission of bringing light to the nations is the very mission that God gave to the people of Israel. They were never meant to just enjoy an exclusive relationship with God. They'd just be like, oh, good thing you love us and no one else. They were always intended not to just be containers of God's blessing, but a channel of that blessing to others. Remember, that's what God originally promised Gen uh, Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your family into a great nation because the ultimate purpose is to bless all the families of the earth through your family. And Jesus came to fulfill that promise. Amen? All the promises. We just sang. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. He is the one. If you, like me, I don't know if I have a, a single ounce of, of Jewish ancestry in me. I am grateful that God's grace extends to Gentiles like me. I don't know about you. And if you are someone who, you are ethnically Jewish, understand this. Jesus has not rejected you, though your ancestors way back rejected him. That same hope is there for you. That same hope to turn and to trust in Jesus is there for you. We'll see a lot more about this ministry to both Jews and Gentiles as we continue through the book of Matthew. But for, he, for now... Here in chapter 12, Jesus has even more words of warning for his generation. And it comes again in a rather cryptic way. Look at what he says in verse 43. He tells this story about an unclean spirit, a demon going out of someone, wandering around for a bit, going, I'm going to go back and see what it looks like. And it's swept and put in order and nice and neat and goes, let me get my friends and we'll come. Even more evil than him. And the point is at the end, the last state of the person is worse than the first. Though the demon was driven out initially, it didn't do him any good in the end. What is Jesus talking about here? It is a puzzling statement. And again, 
Jesus is talking about unclean spirits, demons, which are real. Two weeks ago, that was what we looked at when we talked about this whole idea of Jesus coming to plunder Satan's kingdom. If you missed that message, I would highly encourage you to go back and take a listen to that one. But I actually don't think that Jesus is giving us a lesson in demonology here. I don't think that his main point is to teach us how demons function. Instead, I actually think what's happening here, it's, it's, it's like a parable. Again, a, a true-to-life story, but it's meant to illustrate something that is real. It's made up, realistic, meant to illustrate something that is real. And here's the reality that I think that Jesus is illustrating. He's talking about the incompleteness of removing something bad from your life and not replacing it with something good. Just leaving a void, a vacuum, which tends to not stay empty, but get filled up with other stuff and usually not better stuff. And the last state of the person is worse than the first, as he says. Do you, do you follow that? Here's why I think that it's a parable. I think the key phrase is that one that's highlighted in blue up there on the screen. Jesus says, so will it be with this evil generation. He's talking about his generation, his contemporaries, those who rejected him. He is foretelling what the end result of all of his ministry will be for them. Because they did not turn. I mean, think about it on one hand. When you think about Jesus' miracles, a lot of his miracles had to do with healing people from sickness or, or casting out demons or raising the dead. Basically, I guess you could, you could classify all of them as cleaning things up, dealing with what was broken and wrong and defiled and setting things in order, sweeping up, cleaning up. But yet Jesus' point here, the warning that he has here is if all I do is get rid of the bad and that's where you stop with me, even if you experience healing from Jesus, deliverance from an evil spirit, and you stop there and don't continue to be a disciple, a follower, a learner from Jesus, well, then the last state of that person will be worse than the first. He says that's what it's going to be like for this generation. And again, if you're familiar with the history of what happened after Jesus with the Jewish people, you see that is exactly what played out for them. After rejecting Jesus as king, even after he died and rose again and ascended on high, well, the people of Israel basically just turned to one leader after another who was willing to fight the Romans. Whatever bombastic rebel leader who wanted to lead the charge, take the hill, make Israel great again, all that kind of stuff. And what was the end result of all of their efforts to fight their enemies on their own power? Well, in 70 AD, the Romans marched in with their vastly superior armies, besieged the city of Jerusalem, tore it to the ground, including the temple, and scattered the Jewish people among the nations. And the last state for the people, for Jesus' generation, was worse than the first. All that took place 40 years after the time of Jesus, within the lifespan of that same generation. All the good that Jesus did, and we will continue to see that he continues to do for his people, for those who refuse to turn and trust him, all that good will ultimately do them no good. Because the last state will be worse than the first. We're going to continue to see this as we go through the book of Matthew. And though we're familiar with it, don't miss the tragedy of it. Don't miss the tragedy of the rejection of Jesus by his people. 
Because I think that that story is really instructive to us. I think there is a warning there for us. And here's the warning. It is possible for us to experience great blessing from God, even great healing or deliverance, and still miss Jesus. Still miss him. Have you ever wondered what happened with a lot of the people that Jesus healed or cast out demons from afterward? I mean, the reality is we, we don't get a lot of that information in the Gospels because the Gospel writers, their main focus is Jesus, right? And even the miracles and the ways that he heals people, their main point is to help, help us see this is who Jesus is. Look at what his authority is like. They don't often carry the story on about what happened with those people afterward. There's a few places we see that. Like, like in the book of Luke, we read of some women who Jesus healed in Luke chapter 8. He healed or cast out demons from them, and they continued as followers of Jesus. One of those was Mary Magdalene. It says that, that she had seven demons who Jesus cast out of her. And what was her response? I'm with you, Jesus, wherever you go. I will follow you. But that wasn't everybody's response. Later on in Luke chapter 17, we read a story of 10 lepers that Jesus healed. He healed all 10 of them, and they go off. And it says only one of them came back and praised God for his healing. Jesus commends that man, but he also says, where's everybody else? Did only one return to praise God? Were the rest of them just content to get something from me and not follow me? Were they content to look to me to get them out of their problem but not follow me as a disciple? Do you see the warning that's there for us? To come to Jesus, to seek his help with problems going on in our life. That maybe that's why you're here this morning. And if you are seeking Jesus' help for problems in your life, whether that's sickness or even demonic oppression, whether it's problems in your marriage or parenting, dealing with grief, dealing with issues of lust or anger in your own life, you, yes, you, yes, look to Jesus for help. Look to Jesus for help. But understand this, understand the warning. Even if you experience great healing or deliverance or improvement in your life, you experience reconciliation in your marriage, you, you develop more healthy relationships with your children, and you stop there. Thanks, Jesus, for cleaning things up. I'll take it from there. You settle for becoming a more moral person, getting your life a little bit more in order, but you do not continue to follow Jesus, put his character to practice in your life. There is a very real danger that the last state for you will end up worse than the first, that you will be one of those that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount who will stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, don't you remember when you cleaned me up? I don't know you. I don't know you. This is a very real danger for us, which is why, church, which is why we're teaching through the book of Matthew. This gospel is all about Jesus, and it's all about discipleship. Not only believing in him, but following him, being an apprentice of Jesus. Here's the point. If you want Jesus as your savior or even as your healer, as your fixer, 
but you reject him as your king and your teacher, you fundamentally misunderstand who he is and you are in danger of missing him completely. Later on in the book of 2 Peter, Peter, one of the apostles, I think he's reflecting on these very words of Jesus in 2 Peter chapter 2. But he has in mind at this point real faces and real names of people that he used to follow Jesus with who along the way said, no, nah, thanks, I'll take it from here. Listen to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 22. For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. You see him quoting Jesus there? It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, the pig, after washing, returns to wallow in the mire. This is a very real danger to want Jesus as savior, as rescuer, as healer, but reject him as king and teacher is to misunderstand him and be in danger of missing him completely. Jesus did not come just to clean us out and leave us empty. He did not come to bring an incomplete rescue. He came to fill us up. He came to fill us ultimately with his spirit so that his character would be formed in us as we learn to follow his commands. That's what he came to do. This is why the initial message that Jesus preached is the one we regularly need to hear. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is not just a one-time thing. It is a lifelong pattern in our, in our lives. A turning from our sin, from our selfishness, from even just lesser things and turning to God in obedience and allegiance. It's a change of mind, a change of allegiance, a change in what we love and what we live for. As we learn to follow in the footsteps of Jesus so that we can become like Jesus. Jesus illustrates it again with this parable of a demon going out and then coming back because nothing took its place. The same principle, though, I think is explained later on by the Apostle Paul in a lot of his epistles through these dual actions that he calls us to practice as followers of Jesus of both putting off some things, wrong things, and putting on the right things, godly, Christ-like characteristics in their place. Look at the way he puts it in Colossians chapter 2, 3. He says, put to death what's earthly, part of that old life in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Take it all off. You used to walk in those things, but then he says in verse 8, you must put them all away, including anger, wrath, mouth. Take it off. Put it to death. But don't just stop there. Don't just stop with cleaning out the bad. Look what he continues to say in verse 12. I put the wrong verse up there, but it should be verse 12. Put on in their place as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 
bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint, forgiving each other. Verse 14, above all these things, after you put off those other things, put on love. Again, this is not a one-time light switch, flip it on and you're done but a lifelong pattern. There's so much more that we can go into, which is why this whole idea of gospel transformation is such a key part of our discipleship pathway. For the, the way that we want to disciple those who are members here at Cornerstone to both be disciples and make disciples. Some of you guys in your discipleship communities will be diving into that gospel transformation study this fall, which is why I kind of want to give you a teaser of it this morning. For the rest of you, I would just say this, we are working to create more communities, groups like that in which to, for discipleship to take place. But if you have not yet considered joining us in that commitment of membership for the purpose of discipleship, I would encourage you to start there. And we've, we've talked about it a lot over the last two years, and maybe it's one of those things that's been in the back of your mind, of, oh yeah, I need to get around that. Or maybe you have true questions, things wrestling in your soul. You're, I don't know about this whole thing. Come talk to us. If you've talked with a bunch of other people, come talk to me or, or Mike or any one of the elders, John, Dan, we would love to explain to you our heart. But again, that would be a great place for you to start. But again, with what we have left of our time. Let's look at the way that Jesus concludes this chapter with this really interesting interchange with his family. He's still speaking, wrapping up this whole conversation, this argument. And then he hears that his mom and brothers are outside. And he gives them the cold shoulder, doesn't he? He doesn't even acknowledge them. Why? The book of Mark sheds a little bit more light on it. In Mark chapter 3, we see the same story, but before that, in verse 21, there's this really interesting statement where we find out that Mary and her sons are hearing the news about what Jesus has been doing up in Galilee from where they are in Nazareth, just a little ways away, and they're concerned. Not just concerned, it says they went out to seize Jesus because they think he's out of his mind. We don't know what he's doing. We better go get him and bring him back home or something bad's going to happen. Now, whether they were motivated by a sense of shame that he was somehow dishonoring the family through the thing that he was doing, or um, uh, perhaps this is even like a protective response. This is like a protective mama bear response on Mary's part where she goes, I don't know what Jesus is up to, but if he keeps going, someone's going to hurt him. So I'm just going to go bring him home and keep him safe. We don't know all of what was motivating. We do know that at least at this point in the story, even Mary is struggling to wrap her mind around what Jesus is doing. With that gap that we've talked about between expectations and reality. I mean, she must remember what the angel Gabriel said to her, that this child who would be conceived in her womb, her virgin womb by the Holy Spirit, would be that king from the line of David, that forever king, the son of God. She knows that. She knows he's the king, and yet even Mary is wrestling with the way that Jesus is bringing the kingdom. I don't know about you, I find that kind of comforting. You ever struggled with Jesus and his ways, why he says certain things or does things that way? Mary did too. Now, we know by the end she'll come around, and at least two of his brothers will come around along too. She's there at the foot of the cross as Jesus is dying. But at least at this moment, at this point in the gospel, Jesus doesn't choose to address her or his brothers. 
Instead, he talks to the people in the room with him. And I think this is what's really interesting. I think, I think Matthew very purposefully sets the stage. He lets us know where everybody's standing. It's like he's blocking out the stage so you know where the different characters are, right? He's in a room with a crowd of people, including some of those Pharisees who've been arguing with him the whole time. And his disciples are there. Mary and the boys are outside wanting to talk with him, right? And yet, when someone comes in and says, hey, Jesus, uh, your mom and your brothers are outside. He asks the question, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he stretches out his hand and he points to not everyone in the room, but to his disciples those who had rearranged their lives to follow him. And he says, that's my family. That's my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my sister and my brother. He radically redefines family here, doesn't he? Not just blood relation, but obedience to God's will. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to do God's will? Well, here, actually think Jesus, the two ways that he refers to his disciples as disciples, learners, followers of him, and as doers of God's will, I think they inform each other. What does it mean to be a doer of God's will? It is to be one who listens to and pays attention to and seeks to put into practice the teachings of Jesus. To be a disciple is the will of the Father. Does that make sense? In many ways, what Jesus says here echoes the way that he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember this back from Matthew chapter 7. Again, he warns and says, not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And when we taught through this, I think I taught this passage, the question is, well, what does it mean to do God's will? Well, look what he says in the very next verses. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, of Jesus, and does them is the wise man who builds his house on the rock. To do the will of the Father is to follow the commands of Jesus. To be one that is identified with Jesus, or even more importantly, one whom Jesus identifies himself with, comes down to this. Not what you think about Jesus. Not what you know about Jesus. Not what you think you know about Jesus. But have you turned and trusted and have you begun to follow Jesus? to put his commands into practice so that his character is formed in your life through his spirit. That's what it is to have confidence that you're part of Jesus's family. Again, hear me right on this. This is not saying that this is some sort of works salvation, that we have to somehow earn through our performance entrance into God's family. We are, as the reformers clarified for us, we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, amen? Amen. But the faith that saves us works. It follows Jesus. Do you have a faith that follows Jesus? Not to earn your spot into God's family, but if you are in God's family, do you live like it? That's what Jesus is talking about here. Does that describe you? Let me say one last thing as I invite the band to come back up with us. If you see Jesus' words there about being a doer of God's will, and that brings a sense of conviction in your life, because if you're honest, you look at your life right now, and it's much more about what I want than what God's want, God wants. 
Here's what you do. God's will for you is to come to Jesus for forgiveness. God's will for you is to come to him and confess, I've been living this thing my own way, doing my own thing, but Jesus, I want to turn and I want to follow you. Would you forgive me? Would you empower me to walk in your footsteps? If you recognize that being a doer of God's will is not a good descriptor for your life right now, then do God's will by coming to Jesus today. Whether that's for the first time or for the 15,000th time, if you go, as you go, there is still stuff in my life I need to put off and other stuff to put on in its place. This is the regular pattern of life for us as followers of Jesus, amen? All right, come on up, guys. I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna sing one last song about doing God's will. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus. You are a teacher of truth, and sometimes truth needs to cut us deeply. Sometimes truth needs to upset and unsettle us. But your purpose is not just to leave us in an angsty place or an empty place. You came to clear out the bad and fill us with good so that your character is formed in us by your spirit as we follow your commands. Would we be a community of disciples who look more and more like you and make you known to others? You are the light to the nations. Thank you for even the video we got to see and pictures of brothers and sisters who we may never meet this side of eternity, but we are family together because of you. Lord, would you keep that going in us for your glory? We ask this in your name.